day at the office, isn't it? I've watched at least so, two films. I've watched, yeah, it's been good actually. I've, I've been, I didn't realize how many I'd watched, and tellingly, there's, there's one film, especially called Acts of Vengeance with Antonio Banderas, of course. That uh, when I was like looking at the list, I must have watched it last Tuesday or something. I, I had I had to kind of look look it up, look it up to kind of remember anything about it, which is not a good sign. A week on from watching a film, I watched a film like two days ago, and I, I just I I knew I'd watched a film, but I could not for the life of me remember what it was. I had to go back through my IMDb ratings just to remember what it was. It's that bad. Oh, that sounds like a proper nine out of ten job. <laughs> It's so forgettable. Uh, <laughs> so <clears throat> I'm still laughing, by the way, at the Kellogg's start. When I was editing that last week, I st- I'm still laughing at it now. Um, the, or it might just be because I, I edit in a massive room and I laughed once and it's just echoing back. And, yeah. actually, and actually, I'm very sad. But there's yeah, still yeah, the deeply morose. <laughs> um, so I've, I'll go through mine. So this, this week I've watched Internal Affairs, Ocean's 8, McBain, Red Dragon, Line of Duty, Acts of Vengeance, Midnight Run, Street Crimes, and Under the Gun. Oh, nice. Seen a few of them. Yeah. Oh, really? Nice. Oh, I've got a couple of them. Um, okay, so this week um, I did watch, on your recommendation, I watched McBain oh, and, yes. and Edmund. Um, and I've also watched Supernatural Forces, a.k.a. The Mind's Eye, um, A Time to Kill. The Gladiator, Kill and Kill Again, Terminal Force, Moon 44, <laughs> and Return to Oz. Um, they're the <laughs> ones I've got like on my preliminary list. There's another load after that. But basically, I figure that if I can get through them, and then, yeah. you know, if we've got more time, then maybe just slip into the... <laughs> To the second tier <laughs> second tier oh, they must be real quality okay well it's an action-packed episode so should we, um you've got more than me so do you want to kick off well we could uh, we could talk about mcbain if you want you know because this is something i know you watched it and you suggested that i watch it yeah if only for the casting choices yeah uh, the, the thing is so so yeah you kick off because it's fresh in your mind and i'll, I'll kind of join in I, I i will as a bit of background to people listening i i wanted ruby to watch it because I know McBain has been a kind of go-to bad action film for a lot of people for decades, and it's one one I've always seen and haven't uh, sort of seen around, but never never go around to watching. And when I watched it, I was surprised because I thought it would just be some really ropey little dodgy kind of a grimy New York action thriller, much as all of the promotion has you believe it is this kind of like cop thriller set in New York. Um, so little of it is in New York. <laughs> he just looked at a postcard briefly at one point. A massive Texas. And uh, I was going to make a joke about the woman in Texas then, a Charlene, Charlene something. Wow. Um, Spiteri. Charlene Spiteri. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, most of it is set in South America, really, isn't it? I'm not even... Yeah. Is it is it named the country? Is it Colombia? I'm not sure. It's, it does say Colombia, but but that's what right. I was going to say is how it's not only is it kind of weirdly advertised, but also it's it's a surprisingly large budget um, with, the, with the explosions and the effects and the cast they've got, and yet and yet it's, it's such a bizarre a bizarre film. It's structurally really weird, isn't it? So it starts off with um, Chris Walken um, in who is prisoner of war in Vietnam. 
it's not well is, is it vietnam yes yeah it is i, yeah, I yeah. think it is yeah um we, yes it must be yeah so he's a prisoner of war and he's getting a pasting in a prisoner of war camp thinking bloody hell i've done this once before in the deer hunter i don't want to do it again but there you go there he is and he gets rescued um and the one the dude who rescues him well part of the squad gives him tears a hundred dollar bill i think it is in half gives him half yep and then he he toddles off back to new york to start a new life and it's like it's like what is it 10 15 yeah, so it's twenty years, even. I think it's. I think it's either thirteen or eighteen years. All right, okay. So he just goes back and it becomes a construction worker in New York, but then uh, things kick off in South America, and basically he needs to take a squad back there to yeah. take out this dictator guy. Um, I guess some sort of communist. Um, and yeah, that's it really, and start a revolution anyway. Um. <laughs> It is bizarre how um, the the guy who uh, sort of the revolution starts revolution, um, Maria Cachito Alonso, his sister, how she just instantly travels across continents to find a metal worker in Brooklyn, it, and like on uh, just on the hope that he will just suddenly be bang up for getting involved in this conflict a conflict on a different continent. She doesn't just, and it's not like she goes to the office or anything. She goes to the bridge he's working on. And they point to like the top of the tower on this on Brooklyn Bridge or whatever, and she walks up the like the girder, and in high heels and stuff. It's like, what? There's even a shot of her walking, like her feet slipping off it and stuff. It's like I'm not sure this yeah, health and safety health and safety is questionable here. Yeah, anyway, so I know James James Glickenhaus obviously directed this. I know him through. I thought I know that name, and I know him through Frank Henenlotter. Frank Henelotter is the one who made the Basket Case films in Frankenhooker. Right. Um, and Maniac Cop, I think. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, but this is James Glickenhaus. I don't know how many films he directed, but not many, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> uh, so I did, I did like the Tangerine Dream music. That was good. Nice <laughs> bit of subtle, kind of milky electronic padding. That was quite nice. Bit, my bit Michael Mann in the early scenes, but I, overall, I just thought it's not really a very easy sell as a film because who is it really for? Because there's not really enough action in it to please action fans, and it's too stupid to please kind of espionage and thriller fans. So, and it's too silly to be taken seriously. Yet the subject matter doesn't lend itself to any kind of comedy. So it's weird. It's it's really weird. And it surprisingly did appallingly badly. Uh, yeah, like, like, didn't it make like ten pound forty seven or something? I think it. Th- I don't know how much it cost, but it made less than it made around half a million. Um, like worldwide, it did terribly. But there's so many, there's so many like um, ingredients to it. Like the there's the weird, the weird editing where they just say they're gonna like they'll say oh we should we should get money so you know we can start the revolution and then it'll cut to them just taking out a drug den and Louis Guzman's in the drug den and says I haven't got any money you should get up a politician and cut and they've got a politician and they're hanging them off a roof and you're like this is very swift it's just it's always yeah. not about like you know it's just like oh they, we have to explain how we get the money so they can get over there and start the film off proper but there are so many things that happen swiftly. Like um, when when they're in the and the, and the uh, they're crossing into like Colombian sort of international airspace, and 
And then a pilot comes alongside them and says, right, you know, land, you're, you're basically a civilian aircraft. This is illegal. And then they just say, oh, we know you're dead. And then that guy just completely throws his lot in with them and sacrifices himself. Yeah, he's, he's with them. For, he's like part of the team then, isn't he? Yeah, he's... it's... It's, and everything is like that. It's like that someone says something and it happens. Even when Maria Ch- Conchita Alonso's son needlessly sacrifices himself to throw a grenade down like the barrel of a tank and for some reason stays there instead yeah. of just chucking it and jumping off. And but th- that's not the only needless sacrifice in the, in the film because there's also, I think it might even be the pilot who's come along. Um, he gets in a truck when they're kind of attacking the final kind of mansion, sort of dictator's yeah. mansion. Um he he drives a truck with a bomb attached to it, right? And the plan is that he's going to jump out just before the gates sort mm-hmm. of thing. But then, for some reason, he decides he has to stay in the truck in order to make sure it gets to the gate to blow it up. But what actually happens is he's driving towards it, decides to stay in there and sacrifice himself. The truck blows up way before the gates and just keeps going anyway. And then, so this flaming truck just slams into the gates, breaks them open. So actually... They never needed the bomb in the first place. He could have just smashed through the gates with could the truck. Driven it through, yeah. It doesn't need yeah. to be a bomb on there. So it, it's bizarre. Walken, Christopher Walken is so miscast in this film. He is. So, the thing is, I didn't know if he was trying to. For a start, his trousers are astonishing. They, they, they're in like they're in martial arts expert territory. They're up, <laughs> and also he's kind of. I thought, is he just not interested? But I didn't know if he was trying to give off like a, you know, like a kind of prisoner of war kind of di- like emotional distance. But I just think it's just bad acting. Yeah. He doesn't seem involved I literally in wrote in my notes, he comes across as uninterested. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Everything. And, and also, he's been, right, he has been out of the game for years, almost two decades, right? And, and he's really uninterested in the whole thing. So why would he, why is he the shoo-in for the leader anyway? Like, why would people suddenly follow him? The bit where Christopher, where they're flying in the plane, Christopher Walken sees a plane come alongside them and he takes his pistol out and shoots a single shot through his own window and kills the pilot in the other aircraft. That Uh, actually happens in this film. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, with a, with a handgun, the handgun, and when he shoots him through the window, it's not like he creates a hole because obviously, like thousand, and it's all like, <laughs> and everything. It's like, no, he's totally fine. He just, but he just pops his finger through it. Yeah, <laughs> it's I'm not, I'm, I'm not a physicist, but I'm, I'm not sure about how well that would work to fire a handgun through an aircraft window and shoot someone. Uh, like who's flying alongside you i'm not sure that would work at least the way you think it would five feet away and and traveling yeah. at hundreds of miles an hour yeah so you'd have to, you'd have to give it a bit of a, a bit of carry on that shot wouldn't you, you would. you'd have to do, you'd have to aim ahead of them like in a <laughs> like in a flight sim <laughs> yeah it's it is just um but this that's the thing when i when you watch it and all these things are happening and there's these explosions and they've got all this none, it doesn't seem to be uh stock footage you know and, the, mm. and you think well this money's been thrown at it but why it's such an odd film to make mm. it, it's and everything about it just it's almost like they're trying to make it as unappealing to a mass audience as possible really because with the casting with the title i mean mcbain that doesn't mean anything to anyone well, it's and also um I, the one good thing about it the one saving grace is steve james who i do love seeing in, in films that's it that's all i wanted to say yeah <laughs> i just like so steve. basically watch it if you like steve james yeah which we all do don't I mean, watch it if you like chris walken 
or good films, don't watch it then. <laughs> so yeah, it, but it's yeah, it's a bizarre little film, and I don't know if I'd ever watch it again. Probably not, to be honest. Uh, it's odd, odd, odd film. Yeah. Um. So I also watched Edmund on uh, your suggestion because I know you were intrigued by this. And, yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether you had more time to reflect on it or not. Um. Because uh, like the talent on this film is it, it means it's like the. I knew there has to be something more than what's on the surface because when you look at, you know, it's got William H. Macy in it and he was, and this was 2005. So he would have been still pretty, you know, at the height of his career. Cause he did have a, a little flurry there, didn't he? In the late nineties, early two thousands. And yeah, this um, is hot off the heels of the cooler with Maria Bello. Yeah. Um, Stuart Gordon, naturally directing from reanimation from beyond fame. And Jeffrey and, Coons rocks up in it as well, of course. Yeah, yeah. I actually had to go back and find him because I didn't recognise him the first time. Um, David Mamet writing based on his play. Uh, it's very, very dark. I think it, what to me, it seemed like it was a lot like Eyes Wide Shut. I think it's a dream story type thing. Okay. Because I'm not sure at what point it could be said that he starts dreaming, but... Um, it's very similar to Wise Wide Shut structurally in the way that um, he has an argument with his wife early on and then kind of heads out into the night on this kind of odyssey. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and a lot of it is like his, almost like his fantasies playing out, aren't they? Like when he gets, you know, confronted, he'll, he'll be confronted by someone, whether it's a mugger or a woman, and yeah. always, always win in some way. Like a take down the mugger, win over the woman. And also, I, you know, it's got these weird bits where, um, which look like kind of dream images, like the bit where he's just like walking naked through a prison, getting like jeered by the prisoners and stuff. It seems like that's a kind of anxiety dream type thing. Okay. Uh, I, did, I, didn't yeah. t- I didn't take that from it, but that's, that would explain, mm. that would explain a lot of things about it. Apparently, Mama, David Mamet had just gone through a divorce himself. So I don't know whether he was feeling in a particularly cynical mood when he wrote this because it's, it is very, very cynical and it seems to be about kind of a wasted life or the sense of him having uh, wasted his life. And the, the Julia Stiles bit that you mentioned last time where he goes into the bar and he is a mess, you know, covered in blood, all bruised, and he starts ranting, going on a massive, like, racist rant and then she just jumps into bed with him. Yeah. Um, and then not only that, but she starts coming out with her own like horrible, vile, um, homophobic stuff. Um, but it's almost like it's like and that's another. It almost feels like one another is fantasies, really, doesn't it? Because it's like right suddenly someone is listening to him and he's got the girl and she and she's utterly entranced by his mindless ranting. Um, but if it was a dream, though, he doesn't really come out on top on that whole. I took it from when she sort of started saying those sort of um, it, it's against homosexuals, isn't it? She starts ranting about. Yes. I thought that she it, well, that was the point where she realized like how weird he actually is. And she was saying it to kind of just she was as he, cause he's wearing his boxes and brandishing a knife as he's ranting. And I thought her saying those things weren't really what she thought. She was just saying to kind of agree with him to calm him down in the hope that he would leave. Yeah, um, yeah, because it was, it was it is a weird one because a she 
like if you imagine that is like real life right she would not go home with him in the first place okay no. so you got that you got that part but then as soon as he like like got out of bed and yeah brandished a knife and started ranting about black people and stuff that would probably be the moment when she'd be like oh, i might i might just make a move to be honest um trying to get a groove on yeah uh, if i'm but i am going to give david mamet and Stuart gordon the benefit of the doubt and assume that it is a projection of his own mind the stuff that's happening because it do, but it does make it extremely troubling to watch because literally every person he like attacks whether verbally or physically is black yes um, well except her obviously except um julia stiles and they're all thugs or pimps or rapists or whatever um yeah. and every woman is just a shrill bitch or young and gagging for it really so yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of like i guess a thinking man's fallen down in a way but yeah did you quite as much fun as falling down? and you're like am i enjoying this yeah i don't think it is a film to enjoy i think it, it's a film to reflect upon it's a really dark film and interesting i suppose but deeply unpleasant <laughs> deeply deeply unpleasant Yes, and the ending is just bizarre. Yes, and quite good one, isn't it? So it's fine. It's very, it's very amusing in a way. The ending, but it's probably worth a watch. I think, given that it's only like eighty minutes, and yes, yeah, eighty minutes. But it is very weird. The only reason, the only reason why I almost like don't find it just utterly repulsive is the fact that it's you know david mamet writing and i don't believe that he would write something which is to be taken literally one, literal one-dimensional sort of yeah. um <clears throat> you know I'm, I'm glad you watched it and uh, it's interesting interesting to see you took something different from but yeah like I said, it is definitely worth a goosey if you haven't seen it and again at 80 minutes you're not really losing much so um i watched internal affairs with richard Gere and andy garcia that rhymed and this is the one i put on i think it was I think it was Monday night, actually, we did the last sort of episode, and I chucked it on very late, and I was surprised by how good it was. So after about 25 minutes, I thought, no, I need to, I need to actually focus on this, because this is far better than I expected. And, um, yeah, so if people haven't seen it, this is a film, I think it's 1990? Yeah, that would be about right, I think. And Richard Gere's like a corrupt cop, and... Yeah. Andy Garcia is sort of a fresh out of the academy um, internal affairs detective. And it, it, it's just basically, you know, him trying to catch Richard Gere out. And it's quite a, it's, it's sort of a really basic premise. But what, what's so good about it is just how good everyone is in it. Uh, so you've got like Nancy Travis plays um, Andy Garcia's wife. And as he gets, he sort of takes on Richard Gere's traits in a bid take him down so it's, there's a touch of um to live and die in la where you've got a cop who sort of starts out quite wholesome and then kind of gets dragged in into into the negative side of it and the more seedy side of it but sort of justifying it to themselves like the ends justify the means sort of thing and um i was really i really liked it because it's very much a character sort of study and i really enjoyed that side of it because richard Gere is like a real piece of shit in that film uh, some of the things he does and he says and does um he really, he really knows how to push people's buttons, um, yeah. and obviously, there's not a single belt uh, in the entire <laughs> film. Everyone's t-shirts tucked into their jeans. Nary a belt in sight. <laughs> and if they did, they'd be black leather. Don't you worry about that. Um, yeah. So uh, William Baldwin's in it, obviously good, um, and it's 
it, it kind of it deals with the um, like I think I mentioned before. I've got a friend who's in in the police force, and I, I've had a few conversations with him where he says that the, the the job, the things you see, and the fact you're dealing with the sort of real bottom of the barrel on a daily basis and seeing the worst in people day in day out it does yeah. make you cynical and it turns you into a different possibly more unpleasant person um so it's yeah and i thought it captured that really really well it reflects yeah. the conversations i've had personally with with policemen so uh, yeah i just uh, i really liked it really liked yeah. it. yeah i haven't seen this film in like 25 years so i do need to watch it again yeah. what's it where is it available it's on amazon prime good Good, good, good. Directed by Mike Figgis. He did Leave in Las Vegas. Yes. Uh, didn't he do... No, the writer died after Leave in Las Vegas, wasn't it? Was it... Mike Figgis is still alive, I guess, is he? I think so. Uh... I think it's uh, the writer or the director of Leave in Las Vegas who died. I think it may have been the writer of the book. Um, right. But yeah, you know, that makes sense because I really like Leave in Las Vegas as well. Um, so maybe I, the tone of them just appeals to me. Yeah. So nice. yeah, no, yeah, I, I'm I really gonna definitely, definitely worth a goosey. Definitely gonna check that out. Um, okay, I'll move on then on to uh, Supernatural Forces, aka the Mind's Eye. Uh, I, th- I think the Mind's Eye is the US title, and it's called Supernatural Forces here in the UK. So if you're looking for it on Prime, then it's called Supernatural Forces. But I probably wouldn't bother looking for it on Prime because it's not very good. Supernatural Forces is a terrible generic title. At least the mind's eye makes it sound slightly cerebral. Yes, it's not a very cerebral film. This is uh, this is another Joe Bagos film after Bliss oh. and VFW. I thought he's done other things. He has done other things. He did um, so he did this and he did um, he did something else before that called Almost Human. Apparently in 2013. So this mind's is oh, was, this is pre Bliss then. This is pre Bliss. I'd say that. Bliss seems to be the moment when like he starts like finding his mojo because the mind's eye is okay, I suppose. Um it's it's set in nineteen ninety, so obviously set slightly in the past again. Um and it's basically a, this telekinetic guy who looks like Daniel Radcliffe, he's picked up by the police. He can't control his um gift, or is it a curse? Um and like attacks them sort of thing with his mind um he's taken in by this uh kind of mad scientist researcher guy um called slovak who um who's he's developed a drug to kind of subdue subdue telekinesis right um but he's also doing experiments essentially to become extremely powerful um like the most powerful psychokinetic person um so he gets taken to this place, this uh, this kind of institute. It, it, within seconds, he intends to escape. Um, like he is, he hates it the moment he's there. So he's already trying to escape. And then basically, it's it's really just a series of standoffs, uh, usually involving people standing wide-eyed and vibrating in front of uh, each other. Did you watch Scanners by accident? <laughs> the, it's got a lot of scanners in it, definitely. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's like a kind of little subgenre, really, isn't there? These sorts of films, and I, I, then it's never that interesting to see people really, really straining. It's, <laughs> it's like the acting all comes down to who can strain hardest. That's all it is. It's so true. And then they basically just tense up, vibrate, and sweat until there's a yeah. little 
oh, it becomes <laughs> it becomes ridiculous at the end. It's literally them just staring at each other, getting like like the veins are popping in their eyes and stuff. Um, it's got some it's got some really good um, <laughs> practical gore effects. So you get uh, you know heads exploding, people torn in half and stuff. It's got some really nice synth music. Good. Um, and it has a nice little cameo from Larry Fessenden, which is always welcome. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. It's always good to see Larry in anything. Um, there's quite an amusing scene where um, it cross-cuts. He cross-cuts like a, a sex scene with um, the bad guy being injected with a massive needle in the back of his head, uh, back of his neck, which I thought was quite amusing. Uh, um, and he's kind of like, so obviously you've got the sex and then uh, and then in a completely different place you've got this guy just like kind of uh you know spasming with orgasmic uh feelings of this needle being jabbed into the back of his neck it's quite amusing um it's kind of cheap looking and the performances are very variable uh, the guy who plays slovak is he just doesn't have any gravitas at all to the point where they they actually just sort of um, manipulate his voice later on to make him scarier, but he's still not scary. Um, yeah, so it just really, it's okay. It just, it descends into a lot of shouting and posturing and people explaining the plot while they throw furniture around, really. It's oh, okay. Right. And then eventually, yes, just looking at each other and straining. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's straining so hard. Rain's popping out everywhere. At one point, when they when there's like the big standoff at the end, and they're both like levitating and vibrating with this suppressed power, and they're straining and their eyes are twitching. Does one of them say, "I've got a nappy on. <laughs> I have prepared for this level of straining. I will outstrain you, kind sir." <laughs> yeah. Does anyone say that? Um, no, he does. Uh, maybe just pop into a, a corner shop to get some cheap panty liners. At one point, I didn't really know that for though. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, the, the subgenre of men straining in a film is one that I do need to look at. I mean, Scanners, um, yeah. and uh, this, what was this called? Supernatural, what a terrible title. Supernatural and, Forces, and yeah. you explained it, it's an even worse title. Yes. I mean, The Mind's Eye does make sense, at least. I don't know why yeah. they would change that. Yeah, it's not, it, it's more of just an, an excuse for some cool gore, really, which is fine. But like if you watch scanners i mean that has got actually you know a story behind it and actually some depth but yeah just thinking about obviously when good when uh, who was also in uh, mcbain obviously when i know when what's it called the madness of richard the third was released in america they had to call it the madness of king richard because they were worried <laughs> that american audiences would you know think oh missed the first two films i'm not watching that one and maybe like in this way with the title of this film they said oh, we better call it in the uk supernatural forces and not the minds because otherwise people will think that dennis waterman's in it <laughs> and they were and so yes yeah, good point actually we better <laughs> want to get one of that trap yeah. yeah roger ebert dennis waterman wasn't in sight for the two hours i sat there <laughs> so um, Roger Ebert right saying that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Not even British. <laughs> Red Red Dragon. Um, this was a weird one. Red Dragon. I didn't realise it was a, a Brett re- Ratner. effectively a remake. Yes, for a start, Brett Ratner. When that name floated on the screen, I thought, "Oh no, 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 no!" I was going to watch this. Um, 
and obviously I didn't realize it was kind of a, a, a retelling of the story of Manhunter. Mm. Um, I, cause I think the problem is I watch these films like red dragon manager. I've watched them probably about two or three times each over the years. And they're com- this, they completely molded together in my head. And right. I, I keep on taking parts, but there are the sort of beats of the story uh, are the same in each one. Yeah. I think <clears throat> I want to watch Manhunter again. I'll probably watch it with you. Cause I know you're a huge fan of it. Um, but I, Considering Brett Ratner was in this, uh, sorry, directed this, mm. I actually really enjoyed it because, again, I mixed this up in my head with Hannibal, with Julianne Moore, and yes. yeah, and which, Ray Liotta. And I think that's the worst one. Yeah. Um, it's really unpleasant. It's the worst one. So with Red Dragon, I mean, the, the cast, you know, you've got um, Harvey Gaitel, Ed Norton, Ray Fiennes, who is terrifying um, yeah. in that film. He is so threatening. The sequence with Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, when he wakes up and he is in his kegs and he is glue literally glued to a chair and ray finds comes in and he says i'm, I'm going to show you my transformation and he said and the thing is the whole thing about him being obsessed with this red dragon painting and constantly talking about morphing and and transforming into like another being in the in other hands it could have just been like oh shut up rafe but yeah. He's so kind of, it's so intense in the way yeah. he delivers his lines. And the bit where he drops, he turns around and drops his like bathrobe and you, and you see the tattoo. And when Philip Seymour Hoffman, the way he juggles this kind of kaleidoscope of emotions of, first of all, kind of, um, what's the word? Like, uh, like humoring him almost, mm. like thinking he can talk his way out of it. And then that fails. And then he he's trying to work it out, and the kind of roller coaster of emotions he goes through in that like brief scene, when he realizes that he can't get out of this, and the absolute fear and dread is amazing. Uh, yeah, so- it's a re- I, it's a really interesting part that isn't it of the reporter because, of course, Stephen Lang played him in Manhunter, and again, it was such a standout part because it's, it's quite a small part really, but mm. quite vital, and yeah, so it sounds like he made an impact as well because i've only i started watching red dragon once but i just couldn't get through i couldn't get past like 20 minutes because i i wasn't quite in the mood for the particularly flashy style of editing that it was displaying but if you're saying it's good and worth it and worth watching for the tooth fairy himself then i may well give it a go yes absolutely um yeah because it's it, it never feels it never kind of um escalates out out of control it never just gets really obviously at the very end there's there's a build-up to you know to, to a sort of sequence but a lot of it is just them just trying to work it out and i quite like that that it felt quite yes. methodical because i like was... well yeah that's what i loved about manhunt i loved the procedural aspect of it where they're trying to work out you know what's written on the toilet roll and stuff like that i just think it's really cool it's yeah really interesting and the home movies yeah and the way and it feels quite nice in the way that um it, it all kind of comes together and every, everyone sort of plays their part. But yeah, Ray finds it, uh, he really stood up for me because, of course, the, a lot of the action, just by the sort of um, the, way, the, the point of the film is that, you know, it's all happening off screen and they're trying to solve these um, murders. And then when you, so when you do see the tooth fairy, you do see him actually commit, committing the crime. You don't just see the sort of aftermath of it. And it has such an impact. You think, yeah, they, they really need to stop, slow him down, really. <laughs> he needs to put the brakes on her. Yeah, slam the brakes on. Say, can I speak to you for a minute, uh, Mr. Perry? I think part of my reluctance to watch Red Dragon over the years has been um, 
it's not so much the Brett Ratner thing, really. It's it's the fact that I think that the original film, flawed though it was, like the casting was so brilliant that these people are kind of drilled into my mind. So obviously you've got William Peterson, who's amazing. You've got Tom Noonan. You've got Dennis Farina. You've got Brian Cox. And I, I can't imagine other people stepping into their shoes, but from the sounds of it, they do all right. I, so. I don't, again, I will say, I don't have as much of a connection to Manander because I saw Red Dragon first and then I saw Manander mm-hmm. afterwards. So, but, but then I, I quite, I, they quite happily sit together in my mind, if you know what I mean. Um, but right. yeah, I can imagine if you are really attached because it is effectively a rehash of that. You, mm. you basically may as well just choose the one you want. Yeah. I, I, is this on Prime? Yes, Amazon Prime. Good. Or oh, possibly God. Netflix. Possibly Netflix, actually. Okay. But it's one or the other. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. Okay. I think I might give it a go then. Yeah. It'd be interesting just to see if you can make it make it through. I didn't know I didn't notice the edit and the edit didn't which was good because I was waiting for something to piss me off because of Brett Ratner, <laughs> but it never did. Um who plays the girlfriend of the Tooth Fairy, the blind oh. lady? Oh, I know her name. I because again, it was Joan Allen in Manhunter, and that's when I fell in love with her. I fell in love with William Peterson and Joan Allen in the same movie. <laughs> um, it's it is it's Emily something. Em- Mortimer. Emily Watson. Watson. Ah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can. I can see that. She's very good. She okay. she is really good. In it, yeah. Okay. Good. Um. So I watched. I continued my little Schumacher Joel Schumacher a thon. Yeah, uh, with a time to kill. Oh right, okay. Which, unbelievably, is the same writer and director as Batman and Robin. So it's Akiva Goldsman and Joel Schumacher, and this is a really kind of dark, grim. Um, uh, is, I guess it's dark and grim, and yet oddly sentimental. Um, sort of. I mean, it has. It's sentimental elements to it, but most of the time it stays pretty just actually harsh and grim, really. It's, it's set. Matthew it's, McConaughey is sweating in this film. Everyone is dripping with sweat constantly in this film. Like, you know, the, it's not like, it's not even like movie sweat where it's like you can see droplets. It's like that kind of sheen of sweat that you genuinely get in, in a hot Robert place. Martin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a courtroom drama about. It basically, what happens is a guy, um, Samuel L. Jackson plays a guy whose um, who's 10-year-old daughter is attacked by just these white thug wankers, basically, who oh. at- attack her, beat her up, rape her, and uh, then lynch her. Um, nice. And he... And basically, Samuel L. Jackson... They get caught and they're on the way and they're on their way to be tried in court. And um, Samuel L. Jackson guns them down, basically. So it's the courtroom part is about whether he is gonna what what kind of a he's going to be sentenced for. Basically, um, is it murder? Is it manslaughter? And you know what what's going to happen to him? Because will he get the death penalty for sort of thing yeah. for what he did? And um, yeah, it seems like an impossible mission sort of thing, and it's um, but it's it's well made, and Matthew McConaughey's very good in it. Sandra Bullock rocks up; she's she's also good. Um, and and you know, given that Joel Schumacher um, 
well, he he must have made this between Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, and he keeps this kind of stylistic flourishes mostly under wraps. Um, I mean, there are a few scenes where you're wondering why someone doesn't just turn on the light, but you know, it looks <laughs> atmospheric. Um, and it's yeah, good performance from Matthew McConaughey. This was his kind of period of pre-rom-com period of you know yeah. Amistad and Contact and stuff like that. Um, Samuel L. Jackson's probably the standout in terms of the performances, though. Uh, he's really good in it. I, I think the only real disappointment is that you don't have any scenes really between him and his family. I, I mean, I don't think his wife gets a single line. In fact, I'm not sure that any black people get lines in this film, which is kind of ironic given that the whole subject matter the whole subject matter and and really i mean samuel jackson's big speech at the end is about white people empathizing with black people and not just um not just treating them as a a kind of a whole separate um as a as a separate part of society but actually empathizing with them and you know engaging with them um it's pretty fast moving there are some ridiculously fast uh, far-fetched moments like like where someone plants a bomb under um matthew mcconaughey's house um well a kkk plant a bomb under the under his house and he try goes to disarm it and when he can't disarm it he just lobs it into the air and it explodes it's quite ridiculous um uh, but- it's weird that you should say I, when you said the, the plot is fast moving that seems quite a good thing because some the problem with some quarter dramas i look at you the pelican brief oh my god is yeah. that they're just glacial yeah but it is it's like it's it's one of those things where almost every scene there's quite an a, like a remarkable incident sort of thing so it does keep it does keep barreling along pretty pretty fast and it has um it's pretty well written i mean it's a good final speech which kind of it's very much in their kind of tradition of like Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird or or indeed Kevin Costner in JFK. So you get this good quality big speech at the end. Um, yeah, and it is obviously sadly still relevant, especially when Samuel L. Jackson talks about how there's this kind of binary division in American society between blacks and whites. Um, it's not as nuanced as Just Mercy, which I think we talked about a few weeks ago. You but happen, still, I was going to say you happened to have in the last few episodes um, with with the current um, sort of social climate. You've watched these sort of films, and I know this one was Joel Marker, but has that been an actual? Have you sort of seeked them out? Um, not specifically, no. I don't think so. This one was just because it was Joel Schumacher, and I happened to have seen Flatliners and Falling Down too recently too. So I thought I'd give this a go. But um, yeah, but and Just Mercy was literally because that's because they were offering it for free um uh through microsoft store um as part of the black lives matter thing so it's not yeah it's not as nuanced as just mercy but it is still a pretty good intelligent mainstream movie yeah um watch the the next film i watched um isn't as good as the film you just mentioned. It's a film with Aaron Eckhart and called Line of Duty. Now, you may have seen this advertised on Netflix. Oh, my God, I started watching this. Um, I started well, I, watching this. I watched the whole thing, Rupert, and I, I am he- I'm here to help, okay? <laughs> I am here to say... I think we need to set up a group so that people uh, can just talk about this. This, it's... I really like... Uh, 
nay fancy Aaron Eckhart, um, although he is starting to look, um, starting to get a touch of the Jeremy Renner as he gets older, like his face appears to be imploding. But he yeah. he is a good man and a good actor, and I, and I do like him as, as a presence. <clears throat> um, he is a cop in this, and what happens is at the start of the film, he's just like he's obviously going through a bit of a marital problem with his wife. It's shown that he's kind of fit, and he he's kind of a very much a cop on the street, banter with like the sort of street kids and stuff, very amiable kind of guy. And he chases down. Uh, he just they there's like someone running down the street effectively, and they say it's part of like a sting operation, like leave leave this guy alone. But he just just takes off in pursuit. There's quite a cool foot chase that takes up the first, I would say like fifth of the film, which is fine. Yeah. And the, the guy, he catches the guy in an alley and the guy basically just forces him to, Aaron Eckhart, to shoot him and kill him. And then his commissioner um, sort of says, you dick, because um, what they've done is they've kidnapped my daughter and we were trying to get information on how to get her back. And now you've just shot our only lead sort of thing. Um, so what happens then? Aaron Eckhart basically goes, oh, sorry um and he's just completely distraught and they find footage of the daughter and she is being drowned um in underground or this underground she's being drowned in some sort of container uh, really slowly and she's got 60 they've got 64 minutes to find out where she is before she drowns right yeah so let me can I, let me just stop you there because please, from, please from that description so far it sounds like a pretty good movie i think about it's pretty solid you know doesn't seem like there's any element that could possibly turn it into a really, really cringeworthy, zeitgeisty movie. Um, may may yeah. I continue? Go on. <laughs> so, you think, yes, Aaron Eckhart is not the star in enough films for my liking. Um, yeah. I first kind of became hip steep in him in like a film called Thursday with Thomas Jane in, I think it was 1998 and then in the rum diary. And I, th- I, I was like, Oh my God, I know he's in his early fifties, yeah. an action film race against time. Aaron Eckhart, give me the popcorn and shut everyone's mouth. Thank you for smoking was the one which made me fall in love with him. So that, oh, yeah, I've seen that one. Very good. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so I'm thinking, here we go. Boom. But then what happens is um, he obviously just goes off to try and find clues about where, like you know where this girl's being held because he finds his responsibility to to find it, and he's goes rogue, doesn't he? Yes, and then, and then two of the most irritating women I've ever seen in or outside of television just take up a lot of screen time. So it's what happens is it cuts, and I think um, when they were talking, I just said to Faye, "Jesus Christ, stop talking!" It cuts <laughs> to like it cuts to them, and they're in this like sort of this sort of new york warehouse and they hey mm. we're gonna we we have this like live streaming thing this unfiltered news we don't give the bullshit we you know we just say it how it is and it's just these two extremely attractive young women in their 20s and they talk in text speak like when they say goodbye they say xoxo and like megalols and all this sort of stuff they basically talk like no one in the world does yeah it was dating before my very eyes yes yeah, and actually. i and they would they're doing this thing where they they do this like live thing where she they introduce each other to this like obviously these thousands of followers they've got, and they they just come across as complete wankers, and mm. and I thought oh my god I'm really glad they're out of the film no 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 but to what happens is, one of them um just it happens to be filming uh, Aaron Eckhart or like you know around the shooting sort of thing and she's trying to sort of talk to him about stuff, 
and she finds out what's actually going on that the public don't know, and then she follows him around for the entire film with a camera on a on a gimbal on a Doctor Richard gimbal, and just and he doesn't just say go away. He doesn't just take a phone off it and smash it on the floor and then actually star in a good film. This, I, I, it was a real problem for me. This yeah, like like not only is it really annoying because she's really annoying, not only is it completely implausible, but also. Why, if he is trying to, like, he's working on his own. It's not like he's working with a squad of people. It's not like he's being out, having shared information or anything like that. So he's already up against it. So then he decides to have this girl follow him around, live streaming everything. Yes. And as he explains where he's going to next sort of thing. So it's like, well, you've stumbled across a bit of a plot uh, hole there, haven't you? Because what this means is, if you think about it, um, it's a tiny spoiler, but basically the story boils down to only like one or two people being involved as as the criminals. But at the start, all they know is the commissioner's daughter's been kidnapped. They've got an hour to find it. They don't know how big this criminal circle is, what, they've, what they're going to ask for, what, if it's politically motivated. They've no idea. So live streaming, the only man who can do anything to stop this is every move just gives them if it was like a huge like a syndicate of criminals they would just watch it on telly and then if they got too close they just kill her and that would be it yeah it's like i can literally see where he is at this very moment he's coming in through the door let's shoot him so it's that is ridiculous um and also the the quipping dialogue between aaron eckhart and the girl was so it was so bad that it, it was at the level of pete postlethwaite's character in mystery men where one would someone would say something and the other person would just say the opposite like there's a bit of which what happens about eight or nine times where obviously he's old and she's young so hilarity ensues and he, there's lines like um he'll say something and she'll say was that a compliment and then he'll say don't get used to it and then a moment later she'll mm. say a compliment to him and he'll say was that a compliment and she'll say yeah get used to it it's that level and yeah. i paused it at one point because i thought this is so irritating and so against what this film could have been, like a really like funky thriller. But I went online, I thought, has this been written by an old man trying to be cool? Because there's no yeah. way. And, and I went online, and yeah, the writer is a dude in his 50s, but the director is a young guy in his early 30s. So what you're left with is like quite a kinetic, like uh, modern sense of direction, but then really, really, really clunky writing yeah. of someone trying to talk like a young girl and having no concept of it. Yeah, it's it's the most irritating film I've seen in a very long time. This, I, this... I couldn't watch after I got about halfway through, and well, we got about halfway through, and you just said, like, I think what got to me most was just the, it, it seemed tonally just wrong, given the subject matter, which was kind of well, it starts off with like this kind of police shooting, this dubious police shooting, and I thought, you know, I I figured it was going to be about, um how difficult it is to be a police policeman and making those split second decisions and stuff. I thought it was going to take it seriously, but then it turned into this really unfunny, like buddy cop, buddy cop thriller. The problem is as well, is that at the start, up until the shooting and after when he meets the girl, his character is put across as like, yes, he's kind of a, a bit of a broken hero. Like he's obviously his marriage has failed behind him. Yeah. He's, he's a nice guy, but he's, he's obviously deeply flawed and he's in these awkward positions and he's quite morose when he's by himself. Yeah. But then they, they doing, they're hunting down. They're trying to find this, this poor innocent girl who's being drowned alive. And he is quipping, he's making jokes and you think this is not, I'm not getting any sense of threat here. And I don't, it's like no one's taking it seriously. And every now and again, it'll cut back to the girl's 
other partner who's kind of watching the live stream and giving them clues as to what, you know where to go next. Yeah. And she is literally like whenever something happens, she's like, oh, hell no. And she'll like literally stand up and like move away from his screen and really, really hammer up and overact. And you think, just shut up, just shut up. And don't be in the film, please. Yeah. Um, it's, that's, yeah. that's the problem, so, isn't it? Because if if it was a case of like they, these two people were forced together and they had to work together, which is usually the case in these buddy films, then it's understandable why they would reluctantly get along and kind of gradually get to know each other. But the problem here is is that there's absolutely no reason why he would have he should have her along. On yeah, any no, level, no reason just for for his own comfort, but also just the practicality of what they're trying to achieve. It's yeah. just really dangerous. Yeah, and um, yeah, there, there's a, kind of an, over, an overall message of like connectivity and, and being connected, it, it, and community can be a force for good. Right. But it's it's wrapped up in such an an interesting and tedious film that it's just not worth watching. Yes, bad. So, yeah, okay. a, a bad and and more 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 so irritating film. Right. So I'm not going to watch the second half of that. No. Um, okay. Um, uh, I watched the the Gladiator, not the Ridley Scott film. I was going to say Gladiator. That. Right. This okay. was a film that Abel Ferrara made for TV in the mid eighties. Obviously, um, it's about a guy whose little brother is killed by a dangerous driver. So, big brother, basically, he goes out in his car and in his kind of pimped up car and spends his time running crazies and under the influence people off the road uh, so they can't hurt other people right so it's kind of death wish meets road warrior which of course sounds cool but in reality it's set sorry this is new york he made his films in new york didn't he before yeah it's yeah Uh, although actually i mean it seems like a lot of the kind of car footage was done on kind of empty roads outside the city so yeah in reality yeah so kind of as a concept it sounds quite exciting but in reality it's really quite boring there's a lot of scenes of him fixing engines and bolting stuff onto his car um and and the the car stunts themselves aren't particularly impressive um one thing I mentioned death wish and I know we've had our discussions about death wish before now It, I kind of like how it does start off, right, as this kind of unapologetic vigilante film, but then gradually it does actually start to highlight the limitations and drawbacks of vigilantism, basically. For example, there's there's a scene where he, like, runs down a speeding driver, st- you know, stops him, gets out ready to kind of kill him, basically, and then he discovers that the driver of the car is actually uh, someone's husband taking his pregnant wife, rushing his pregnant wife to hospital. And that's why he was speeding. So I think right. so it does it does address that stuff. And and in the end, um, once he's kind of got his revenge successfully, he it's not like the cops just let him go sort of thing. You know, he's left this trailer destruction and the film does to its credit, leave us in no doubt that kind of vigilantism isn't a useful approach to these sorts of things. Um, so it's kind of laudable in a way, in the same way that Bad Lieutenant... anyone in this film that we would know? Oh, there's, there's no one. There's no one. Uh, there was, yeah, there was one actor I recognised from other Abel Ferrara films, but I have no idea what his name is. Um, 
Yeah, the, so it, it yeah, kind of laudable in the same way that Bad Lieutenant was, where it's like it starts out quite nasty and he does nasty things, but ultimately it is quite uh it's quite a turnaround at the end, if you see what I mean. Sort of sense of redemption. Um but also a sense that he hasn't just gotten away with it. Um the problem is it's just not very exciting to watch and the editing is so bad. It <sighs> looks literally like it was cut with scissors. It's staggering. Like some bits, the music, you know, when the, like the music just suddenly stops when it cuts and stuff. It's just awful. Mm. And the main actor guy is just awful. So, um, oh, I, you know, I was, when you described that, I was quite thinking, oh, this could be this could be yeah. Time sorted. I was really hoping it would be something, yeah, like a kind of a bit of quality grind grindhouse, but no, yeah, certainly not. I mean, like that, that in cars, where it would be like really nasty and yeah. messy and, and rusty, but no. But with a cool, like, redemptive twist at the end. But now, Nancy Allen rocks up, so that's always nice. Um, but again, as she so often was, she's kind of wasted on just like the bleeding heart girlfriend type role. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, another Nancy, funny if I thought that Nancy Travis in. Um, Oh God! In uh, what was that film called? Internal Affairs. Who plays Andy Garcia's wife? And she's got the saddest puppy dog eyes I've ever seen, and this, this keening, furrowed brow every time. And that's kind of what Nancy Allen. It's a, the curse of the Nancy, effectively. <laughs> the Nancy look. Yeah, even Jack Nancy used to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the Gladiator by Abel Ferrara. Not going to watch it again. No, I don't think it's really worth it. I mean, Abel Ferrari, he's an interesting director. Like, I've watched, whenever I watch his films, they have, it's, he always brings something a little bit fresh to them. Like, he'll make some pretty, they appear quite generic, but then there'll always be some fresh twist on them. So it's never quite what it seems when you, you know, when you first start watching it. Another film that uh, is, again, just something I'll never watch in pretty, pretty throwaway is acts of vengeance with Antonio Banderas. This is a film from within the last like five or six years, I think. And you're a you, bit of an Antonio Banderas, um, kind of trip at the moment, aren't you? Yes. And this, this podcast starts with me. Well, actually two podcasts ago, it started with me watching black butterfly on the Antonio Banderas trip, but this podcast will end with me on very much a journey to the heart of Dennis Farina. Don't you worry about that. Um, so yeah, Antonio Banderas is a lawyer who misses, is kind of a hard-working lawyer who gets makes a living with his mouth. He's fast-talking, and he is he basically works for pretty dodgy criminals uh, unwittingly, but just gets people off, you know, on technicalities, so they can go back out and do naughty things. The little tinkers, and he is working late one night, and his daughter's got like a talent show in her school, and he's late for it, and his wife and daughter end up getting murdered, and. He blames himself and he throws himself into this kind of underground fighting ring, not to win or to fight for any reason. He's obviously completely minted, but just as a way of sort of suffering, he just basically drinks and makes just just purposefully loses fights and just gets really badly beaten up in these underground fighting rings as a sort of a form of penance for his, his actions of not being there. Um and then what happens then is he realizes that that's not really achieving anything. So he decides to look for the try and solve the murder to, because the police um aren't particularly interested obviously the police officers jonathan shesh uh, and he is he's they're like oh yeah yeah we, we're doing as best we can carl urban rocks up and says oh your case has gone cold so you need to you know he just takes matters into his own hands effectively and the way he takes matters into his own hands you know i was saying last last week about um how antonio banderas has got a 
beautiful, lilting, rich, expressive voice that's like can really the, the entire rainbow of emotions can be from like some beautiful sort of um, uh, loving whispering to like really guttural, angry rage, and he's, he can do all of that with his with his voice. Well, obviously, the way in this film he decides to um, avenge his family is by taking a vow of silence and and not speaking. <laughs> So he just doesn't speak, and then he claims that his hearing is almost super, superhumanly accurate after that, which what? helps him precisely once in the entire film when someone cocks a gun behind him and he hears it. But I'd probably hear that. Can you imagine, Rupert, if you will, if you close your eyes for a moment and imagine trying to solve a mystery of who murdered your family um, by tracking down people and then actively not speaking to them? <laughs> So just you're, you're really putting up putting up <laughs> obstacles, aren't you? Yeah. So yeah, he it, not only is it like an 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 uninteresting thing to sort of sit through, but it actively hinders his own investigation. <laughs> so yeah, it's um yeah, and the whole film then is him just basically tracking down who killed his family and and uh, and, and why, and it's just it's baffling to be honest. The the, the whole there is scene after scene of people saying, "Tony, Tony, uh, do you know what happened to them? Do you want any, do you want help?" So what, Tony, <laughs> what reason does he give for not speaking? Like, because I mean, I can understand the bit about the self-destructive part about, you know, getting into fights and stuff. The, but... He finds a book. Is, is it? Uh, funnily enough, it ties back into the Gladiator, not that one. Marcus Aurelius. Right. Okay. He, he gets. He sees a girl who's like twelve or thirteen years old, and she's a prostitute. And he says, you know, w w come on, let's take you home kind of thing. Let's. This is before his vow of silence, obviously. Otherwise, he would have just gestured at her pathetically. Um. Um, like gesturing, that could like, be like zipping, zipping his trousers up and fluttering <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he he's and then the pimp comes up the van and start and she because she's afraid of a pimp more than she's afraid of him. She stabs him in the leg, and to staunch the blood, he he picks up a book from a bookshop as he's going past it, and it's Marcus Aurelius. I don't know what it's called. I forget. But the film is split into chapters, and each chapter is like the a sort of a quote from the book, and one of them is you know that you should. Um, you should never really speak or whatever it is. It's nonsense. It's not interesting. It's just the book a, was called real contrivance. Shut up. Yeah, yeah, it's called Shut Up Tony. Um, <laughs> he's like, oh, this is very specific. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's total nonsense. And even at the end, when, you know, whatever happens, happens, and the, and the film comes to resolution, um, even then, no, he's still, he's still not talking. It's still just a slightly awkward final scene where he gets in the car and someone sort of asks him if he's okay, and he just stares straight ahead. And you're like, okay, you're keeping that up. Yeah, that's not going to get boring. Fast. Um, so, yeah, it's just a really generic film. And it, the way it just kind of wraps up, it, it, it's just it's just generic. So the only time that, well, it actually, it doesn't come in useful at all, not speaking. Because although, yeah, he might claim that it helps his hearing. I mean, there's nothing scientific behind that at all, is there? I mean, that's just not true, is it? No, not at all. He buffs up, and he, he, there are certain parts of his book where you know he, he he tries to get to the peak of perfection, sort of thing, where he buffs up and he tones up, so he's much more capable of fighting and stuff. And he, I suppose, what it is, it's a flip of how when he was a lawyer and he made his living through talking and caused all these problems through talking, then he just if he just shuts up, he'll well, be able to say different things, though, couldn't you? You could just not talk as much. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and there's a scene at the start of the film actually where I, I sort of said right where he's doing a voiceover and says um, women on average a day say 20,000 words and men a day say like 
I think it's like 80,000 or whatever it is, or like 30,000. And he says 80,000 words a day. And then he says, but you know, when I come home, only three words, three of those words mean anything. And yes, it's, it's when he says, I love you to his daughter. Yeah. And I thought you're a solicitor, Tony, you probably say lots of things every day that are very important to a lot of people, to be honest. It's probably just not, <laughs> I love you. If you went around saying, I love you to everyone, you'd probably lose your job. Yeah. To be honest. <laughs> it'd be funny if that was the twist that he could only say the words i love you but he had to like say them in different ways in order to like express himself differently to different people so like if he really hated someone it's like i love you and it's like really aggressive yeah and, and, and she's like when he goes into a diner they say do you want a special do you want fries with it or do you want hands around and then and then he's like oh i love you <laughs> 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 that's it <laughs> And they're like, oh, we don't, I don't know what you mean. I don't know. What you're <laughs> oh, uh, I might as well. I might as well just say nothing at all then. This isn't. Yeah, my... I might just like pop his bottom lip out and shrug, and she's like, I'll just, I'll just give you a phrase then. Um, yeah. It's so it's it's just a it's it's a film that thinks it's much cooler than it actually is. Mm, it seems, but yeah, that's quite an affectation, yeah. really, isn't it? The whole. Yeah, it's, it's, no yeah it doesn't work in the context of the film at all. No, I, I mean, if there was some reason behind it, then fine. But I, I'm not convinced that there is a reason from what you said. No. Yeah, convinced it is. Where, what's it called, and where can we see it again? This is Acts of Vengeance, and it is on Amazon Prime. Uh, also on Amazon Prime is Kill and Kill Again. <laughs> this is a sequel to a film I'll never see called Kill. Kill. It's just it's called Kill or Be Killed. Oh, uh, right, okay. Um, it's a South African martial arts movie, naturally. Uh, it's, it's a person called James Ryan. He's tasked with rescuing a kidnapped scientist. Um, this scientist discovered a mind-control drug when researching potatoes. Mm. And now he's being held by a crazy warlord um, wearing a fake beard, naturally, Good. who is trying to create a new kind of communist super state called new babylonia so they have to go down there get the scientists back before this guy uses the mind control drug to create this thing yeah and then come out so he gets uh so james ryan gets his squad together and they're quite they're quite distinctive different people in his squad of like four or five there's one guy who's like really mystical and he it's really really creepy because he, he'll float across the floor towards him he doesn't almost like he's just moving his toes very quickly it's really creepy so that's quite cool there's some yokel from a caravan park who's just like kind of just a bruiser there's a guy called hot dog um who they find in a, this is where they find him they find him in a warehouse right playing a game with a game for money with a load of these like uh, just drunk guys um but basically the game involves they load a gun, right? Load a pistol, and then all make their bets, and they throw the pistol up into the air or at the wall, and they they're taking bets on who, if anyone, will take the ricocheting bullet as it comes out the gun. So it's just randomly shooting people, just <laughs> hurling this gun into the air. It's, a, it's astonishing. Anyway, and uh, the final I think guy, I'll just think Super Mario Brothers three on the nose, to be honest. <laughs> There's uh, the, the final guy is a Jamaican guy, and his name is Gorilla. Uh, mm-hmm. It is racist. Um, oh, right. <laughs> he is. 
he <laughs> is referred to as an animal. Um, they go on about how they took him from a zookeeper and stuff. Like he goes on a plane, right? They because on the on the plane on the way to this bloody get this dictator. He's on the plane and he he's so like animalistic that he um he wants to go to the toilet. So he just smashes down the toilet door and rips it off his hinges because um, he's so animalistic. Does he explain why he's? It sounds like there's just something like wrong with him. Like to do something. yeah, just sounds like he's got like learning difficulties or something. Yeah. But no, it's it's all done for laughs. Oh, and right. guess what? It's not funny. Um, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of fight scenes. Some of the fighting moves moves are quite impressive. Not completely without an imagi- imagination, but it's shot in a very dull, flat way. How old is um, this one? Sorry. Um, I want to say maybe late seventies or very early eighties. Right. Okay. Um, eighty-one. Is the racism and the profiling, yeah. but at least right. I, I, in my head, it was like a modern thing, and I was. Yeah, I don't know what was going on in South Africa at that time, but I'm pretty sure things were pretty <laughs> segregated as far as blacks and whites were concerned but um yeah um the, yeah the fight scenes they feel they don't feel visceral they feel arranged you know when you're watching like a martial arts film and it looks like they shot they're shooting a rehearsal um rather than the real thing it doesn't look like anyone's really hitting each other and stuff but the action is is non-stop it's a hundred mi- minutes long and do me a favor that's ridiculous for a film like this a hundred minutes it shouldn't be breaching 80, really. Um, <laughs> and there's never any sense of peril. They just kick everyone's ass that they come across. Um, Is it trashy fun? Um, I think if it weren't for the racist element, I'd I'd be a lot more uh, forgiving. Because um, it does... It, it, it clearly knows it's ridiculous and it has no problem with that so it's got a sense of its own stupidity like there's a bit in the like this is a bit early on where hot dog um steals a bunch of drawing pins from a shop or something like that and you don't know why he does it and then in the middle of a fight later on like as he's being beaten up he gets the drawing pins out of his pocket chucks them on the ground and like the guy he's attacking him like steps on the drawing pins and like falls over it's quite cartoony um the warlord element of it um with his fake beard i mean it's quite amusing the way that he he has this sort of harem of women around him and yet he's got this like really really aggressive wife um who (laughs) who's constantly putting him in his place and she'll come in and like he'll make a big speech or something and then she'll like start calling him cute names like angel face and pumpkin pie in front of all his goons so to really undermine him that's that's quite funny um there is a woman in the group and she can hold her own in fights. So that's good. Um, but it's, it's a bit like a kind of Bruce Lee, a team really. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of nonviolent and cartoony enough for kids, but then you wouldn't want to show it to a child. Cause then you'd have a lot to explain with regard to how they treat this black man. Um, and is there any kind of is there any kind of two way street where does does the guy who plays the gorilla does he kind of oh no, no nothing I mean he's yeah it, yeah I mean, is, he, is it the same cast from obviously the original I've never seen or even heard I guess of. so I guess yeah. so I I don't know I yeah uh, it's it's just about it's probably too long to just 
chuck on sort of thing because it shouldn't be that long but i guess in terms of it has got enough amusing characters in it uh, and like they are distinctive enough that um there's some fun to be had i guess um but it's very cheaply made uh yeah so probably not worth it extremely dated but um, I may watch that fun. just out of curiosity if I'm tired one night, you know, because it's one of those yeah. films that wouldn't care if I fell asleep halfway through it, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I mean, it, it's probably just good. I think the the hundred minutes thing is a problem just because it, that's made up with two or three um, fights which just don't need to be in it at all. <laughs> like ten minutes of fighting which just doesn't need to be there. It could be much, much uh, tauter and more efficient. Um. I also, uh, a good one this time, I watched for the very first time, unbelievably, Midnight Run. <clears throat> um, uh, with, yeah, Robin Neer and Charles Grodin. And I really liked it. I was, um, it's one of those films that I, I've always seen, but I've always kind of talked myself out of watching for, for no real reason. Um, and then I eventually sat down to watch it, and I just thought it was, it's so good because this, it's, it's a weird one because it's an action comedy, and it's, amusing all the way through it's never like i probably once or twice i actually kind of laughed out loud but it's so sort of weirdly good good natured and yes the, yeah. and and this so believable in like in, in the interplay between the characters and how um and, and just so fun that yeah. it, it's not about like belly laughs it's just about a, a quality that sustains itself for the full two hours yes it's uh, um yeah i found i thought tonally it's spot on yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can see where they would, you could, they're effectively just two good men in a very unusual situation, kind of making the best of it. And and usually in these films, these these road trips, there's nobody really talking about the plots. Everyone kind of knows the midnight run is. But it never kind of, usually there's a moment in films like this where it's like mismatched buddies or whatever, mm. where someone will do, it'll either do, someone will either do something that's really questionable and it kind of throws the whole tone off, or, mm. Or um, it's like it'll just get really, really zany and ridiculous. Yeah. But this this really just keeps it kind of keeps it normal, keeps it on an even keel until the yeah. very end. Quite grounded, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I found that the, as it kind of come come to the sort of resolution of the plot, I thought, how is this going to end? Actually, I genuinely because I thought this surely they one of them is going to have to suffer this whole situation where they've got like, the FBI closing in the mob, you know, each other's personal pride and stuff. And the way it resolved, I thought, Oh, that's actually quite nice. It was actually, like, yeah. and it didn't feel cheap. It was a really, and I'm, I'm not used to enjoying films up to the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's because of good, the good characterization of Papa and thing. Uh, and of course, I mean, good performances as well. A, a rare case of Robert De Niro being good in a comedy film as well. Although yeah. it's not really an out-and-out comedy, is it? Because it's by... It's the same guy who did Beverly Hills Cop, which is also another one where it's essentially grounded and things that are happening in it are serious, and yet it's got a real lightness of touch, which makes it very watchable. So yeah. it's the same kind of tone. Yeah. So, yeah, nothing... I just wanted to say that it's a bloody good film. And if you like road movies and... I think there's a lot of a lot of road movies uh, tend to be more family oriented. Um, they're they're either really family oriented, like um, you got stuff like 
uh, God, what's the, the ones with like junk, like plane trains and automobiles and stuff like that? Or you've got ones that are much more gritty and adult, where you go the other way then and have stuff like, um, oh God, what's that one? Like true, true romance, not true romance, natural mm-hmm. killers and things like that. Yeah. But then this this just felt like it was kind of because apart from like the constant bad language, nothing really nasty in it. There's no like yeah. okay they they say they, they say the f word a few times quite a few times, but um it's it's not an unpleasant film. It's actually quite a you know it's yeah. not like it relies on like horrible violence or horrendous caricatures of people. And of course, Dennis Farina is in it, and this is what made me realize because there's the scenes in it when he's talking to Philip Baker Hall, or as I call him the dad from dirty dancing and he's just like saying shut the fuck up sydney and kind of uh, and just really sort of um machine gun kind of um conversations at all of his goons and then there's a scene when he finally gets hold of charles grodin and then he leans in and threatens him and his wife and i just thought god dennis freen is really good at this yeah he is yeah. really good at this and and that's what set me off on my odyssey mm-hmm. for the for the next one we'll talk about but uh, after, after you, but um, yes, yeah, Midnight Run. It's like it's high quality fun entertainment for adults, which is surprisingly rare because usually it will just become extremely violent or unpleasant if it's yes. for adults sort of thing. Uh, but it's just it's just smart, you know. It's just a well written, exciting comedy thriller, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it feels weirdly even now. If you watch it, obviously it was what nineteen eighty seven, nineteen eighty eight. Yeah, I've never seen it before, and it felt fresh. And the kind of yes. the, the twists in the plot, they didn't feel telegraphed at all. Yeah. Um, and obviously John Ashton is in it, another tie into Beverly Hills Cop. Um, but it, yeah, it, it it was. It, I didn't feel cheapened at all by it, and I didn't think, oh yeah, this has been done. It's effectively like one of the best kind of road movie films. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So and, and really, I, I yeah. I'm really surprised I would, by how good it was. Yeah, I would say I would say like I wish I'd seen it before, but it's actually been like because I do love that genre, and it's been a real treat to discover something like that. It felt like a real like lost little gem to me personally. So, yes. I mean, very good. It is the kind of film that could slip through the gaps and be forgotten, especially you know. because now when you think of Robert De Niro in a comedy, because he's basically mm. shoved his career up his ass. Yeah. So you just think, oh, do I want to watch that? But no, he actually was really good in comedies at one point, guys. Yeah. Um, I think the key is for him not to be in out-and-out comedies. I'm looking at you, me, the parents. Um, uh, right then. So, well, let's move on to Terminal Force. So, what was Midnight? What was Midnight Run on? Was that on Prime? Uh, yes, it was. Terminal Force is on Prime as well, and I've no idea why it's called Terminal Force. The US title is Galaxis, which. What? is even it makes even less sense anyway for a low budget mid-90s like sci-fi thriller with bridget nielsen and craig fairbrass it's surprisingly okay (laughs) all right (laughs) well so just below average sort of thing um so the prologue shows bridget nielsen's colony on another planet under attack and it's quite like big scale i mean there's a lot of explosions and stuff it's like quite it's it's not short on budget um so there's some dude bad guy looking for their sacred crystal um and uh, a bit of a spoiler but craig fairbrass is like the kind of leader of the resistance here 
um and the bad guy kills craig fairbrass and as he dies um he reveals to bridget nielsen there's a second crystal on another planet guess what it's on earth really unfortunately there is no kind of fish out of water stuff when bridget nielsen comes to earth because i was looking forward to that but you i would not be looking forward to that (laughs) (laughs) um the so it cuts to earth and this kind of klutz called jed um played by someone called john h brennan is this a comedy well well he has the other crystal right so it's not it's not really a comedy no it's but it's kind of like um it's meant to be well it's meant to be quite a a light ish fantasy sci-fi action movie in i guess in a similar vein to someone like master of the universe right something like that um so anyway they're chased around the place by there's gangsters after this guy jed um and of course there's the the bad dude from the other planet who's after bridget nielsen so and if he gets both the crystals then he can control the universe or something like that um so yeah basically it's bridget nielsen protecting this klutz from gunfire and magic spells really it's it's quite well made and it is fast paced um but some of the special effects are a little bit ooh, yeah. I'm guessing this was like what early nineties then, late eighties? It was it was early to mid nineties, maybe ninety four, ninety five. Oh, that's dangerous, dangerous. I know. I'm... Um the script is just derivative of everything you've ever seen. Um it kind of plays out like Terminator for kids in a way. There's even a bit where um like the bad guy storms into a police station and takes everyone down. Um, Sounds vaguely familiar. It's sort of it's kind of good-natured and light-hearted. It's no worse than Master of the Universe, to be honest. But that's not really saying much. Is Frank Langella in it? Sadly not. <laughs> um. <laughs> apparently, I didn't really. You know, Cyborg. Yes. The Albert Pian film. Are you going to say of course, the sets were? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I always knew that the sets from Master of the Universe were reused for Cyborg, but what I didn't realize was that there was actually going to be a sequel to Master of the Universe called Master of the Universe Cyborg, subtitle Cyborg, and yeah, and then of course it did badly at the box office, and so I guess in came Albert Pion to say, oh, don't don't pack everything away quite yet. Because I got a pretty shitty film up my sleeve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is going to be the beginning of my decline, don't you know? Yeah. <laughs> don't we just pick up my massive phone and give Vincent Clinnering? <laughs> eh? Eh? Um, yeah. So uh, it's not it's not the worst film I've seen on Amazon Prime. It's called Terminal Force. It's, it's not the worst film I've seen. Well, that's on the poster, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I do, I, I, yeah. I I do like Bridget Nielsen. She's she's pretty cool in it, um, and she she is she does look the part. Like because she's obviously pretty strapping and like six foot, and it's quite funny the fact that the guy is so pathetic and she's so capable. But um, it's not it's not great. But as I said, no worse than Master of the Universe. 
Um, <laughs> or Suburban Commando with Hulk Hogan. Um, <clears throat> I'm done on my final two films now. So the next one is, again, this is when I put on my Dennis Farina baseball hat and thought, yes, I need to see. So I just typed in Dennis Farina into Amazon Prime and just, just rode the roller coaster where it took me. And it took me to a 1992 film called Street Crimes um, with, I think his name's Dennis Farina and Michael North. Um, right. Just kind of, it's it, it's billed as like a, you know one, one cop's got a gun, the other's got his fists. Or if you mm. look on, I think IMDb inexplicably, it's like one cop's got a gun, the other one's got a knife. It's like what? Because, they, because they run out of guns? What? Yeah. Why not just both have guns? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Much what they're... more useful. But what's really funny is right. So this film it started off, and before I talk about like the, the narrative. Um, it's Dennis Freener's like an old kind of cop, like a kind of you know wise guy sort of thing, and he is in a bar with his mates um, who are all varying levels of unpleasantness. And um, Michael North is like the young sort of cop who's into martial arts. You can tell because of the height of his trousers. Um, and it's fighting like them they <laughs> fighting trousers. They're getting to sort of know each other. And I was watching this film, and I thought. Yeah, I'm actually quite enjoying this. It's because Dennis Freed is so good, and he's just—it's like he's—it's basically him cracking jokes and you know showing them how it is, and they're going around getting into fights, quite bad fights. Um, but before I go into the fights, I'm going to read out what I've written here because most of my notes for this film are about—I just want to put an image in everyone's heads of the clothes that <laughs> the mm. the kind of karate cop Michael Michael North, I think his name is, is wearing, right? So in every scene, he is wearing some variation of like cuffed, elasticated, baggy, stonewashed jeggings. So if you imagine they're, they're cuffed, they're cuffed at like the ankle and the waist. And, but they are voluminous. They are massive otherwise, right? He's supposed to be a policeman. But all of his tops are kind of, if you imagine like he's either wearing like a Frankie says relaxed kind of crop top, which doesn't go down. It goes out almost horizontally, right? They're so short. And, or when he's out and it's a bit chilly, he puts on his jacket, which is almost like, um, like an adamant sort of thing. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, a short kind of top that doesn't fit him in any possible ratio. So it's too short to do up. Uh, sorry, too like tight to do up, but then too baggy and hanging down on the shoulders. So, Every time he starts running, his jacket just comes down and he spends half the film. I don't know if he thought it looks cool, if the actor thought it looked cool. Every time he's in a fight or he's running after someone, his jacket's like half off like a kid when they're sulking, like down by their elbows. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he looks completely ridiculous. And also, he's clearly like a kickboxer. Mm. And he does this little flick with his foot whenever he gets into a fight, which is really irritating. Um, But he... The kicks are fine, but whenever there's any grappling in the film, it's really like clunkily edited. It's oh, kind yeah. of you obviously can't do it, so people, there's like a scramble, and then someone will just like roll away on the floor, sort of thing. Right. When was it made? 1992. Okay. So it's going on. So I'm watching this. I'm in, I'm enjoying Dennis Freener. I'm enjoying this guy's astonishing like wardrobe, and I realised like 40 minutes, and I thought, oh, hang on, there is something missing. Yeah, there's no plot. <laughs> it's, it's just them like pottering around so i think the director thought the same thing as me at that point i thought we better check a plot and actually so the plot is that he arrests a guy like an, an asian american guy and for selling drugs or whatever and he says oh no how about you don't arrest me and we meet at an old disused gym and we have a fight and of course 
being being the, the sort of professional policeman now, they say, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good idea. Doesn't so, sound like standard protocol. <laughs> no, no, he, he just flicks through his book and he's like, it's not in here, but it seems fine. So they have a fight and uh, the Michael North beats the other guy and then they it's like, yeah, you've suddenly got to respect. So what the plot is, is this gym uh, that, they, that they fought in they kind of do it up and it becomes like a sort of a, a, a playground, not a playground, like a neighborhood sort of draws the neighborhood in to watch mm-hmm. like people, the police officers kind of in fair fights fight like a member of the gang. So it's kind of like a street fighting thing, but kind of legalized in a gym almost. Right. And this brings the neighborhood together. So mm-hmm. the main okay. bad guy, yes, right. So the main bad guy is a guy called Gerardo, who is a drug dealer. And his problem is, even though he owns the gym, that he's losing lots of money because people the people now they're not buying drugs they're just going to watch these fights so he's losing money which i think simplifies the issues surrounding <laughs> drug addiction i don't think that quite gets to the heart of the drug problem in america <laughs> somehow i don't think it's just that people haven't got like a community hall to go to somehow um, so there's there's a scene in the film where his trousers are so preposterous that when he's arresting someone, he can't put his gun in his pocket and he glances <laughs> at the camera and instead just like leans over slightly and like holds it between his legs as he cuffs him and it just looks crap. Um, there's there's The music is really good. It's this really simple, minimized sort of synth, which is quite moody and cool. Fine, fine. But the bit I want to talk to you about before we move on is there's a sequence in it where Dennis Freena's blind daughter gets kidnapped. And she gets kidnapped and taken to this sort of um, this house somewhere. She doesn't know where she is, but she manages to break out of her room and call call the police. But she dials nine one one, and there's it's, it's like a deadline. But then when mm. she rings Dennis Farina, her dad, it somehow gets through. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So he, previously to this scene, Michael North has gone to Gerardo's house, and Michael Gerardo has basically said to him. I've kidnapped Dennis Farina's daughter, and unless you stop this fighting, so people buy drugs off me again, I'm not going to let her go. So then mm. he goes back to Dennis Farina just as his daughter rings and says, "Oh look, you know, I kind of know where I am. It's down Mulholland. I could kind of sense the van turning and so on." And he, she gets cut off, and Dennis Farina says, "Oh, she's on Mulholland Drive somewhere, but oh, that's like a million houses. We'll never find her." And Michael North says, "Actually, it narrows down to one house, Gerardo's house," and. <laughs> Dennis Farina says that is literally the last place we would think to look, and then it, and and I thought, is it though? Because because Michael North has just come back from Gerardo's house and said, oh, he's just said he's got your daughter. So this whole sequence didn't need to happen. It's like they did notice it when it was being edited. <laughs> I think that's quite likely, to be honest. <laughs> so um, yeah, and then the last thing I'll say is at the end when they're having the big um, Michael North and Gerardo having this big sort of standoff fight, a fight that I put it to you, Michael North would lose because Gerardo is a massive. <laughs> and also he's not shown as a very capable fighter throughout. Right. He gets like a real kicking before he kind of lucks into a win. And at the end, they both sort of fighting and then they just sort of fall over at the same time and say, oh, should we just say I won? Hey, that does it's not really, sound like a very satisfying it's ending. It's really disparate. Because I thought, why did they fall over then? Oh, no, so they can have a conversation. Um, so, yeah, it's not bad. It's held together by Dennis Farina. But it is very much just like an early 90s action sort of, you know, yes. martial arts film. Yeah. I know this one's on Prime because I've seen it on my watch list. You, you should watch it. Yeah. If only okay. for his clothes. They're astonishing. Um, right. Good. 
Um, let's talk about Moon 44. <laughs> right. The opening titles of this film, right? You know when it comes up with like some a little bit of wording to give a context to what's happening? Because this is set in the future. Does it just go, this is crap? <laughs> <laughs> it says, by the year 2038, 2038, that's 18 years from now, human beings control the universe. The bloody, universe. Bloody hell. Not, we just, not the solar system, not the galaxy, the universe. I can't even so, control my bowels. <laughs> this is t- 2038. That's like that's like next decade. <laughs> and we're controlling the universe. Uh, so basically rival companies are fighting for resources in space. Um, and naturally, uh, Michael Parry, uh, Brian oh. Thompson... And Malcolm McDowell are the last hope for Moon 44. Can you say those two or three names again? Michael Parry, Brian Thompson, and Malcolm McDowell. When was this made? 1990. Oh it my god, how is, are you <laughs> It's a sci-fi action film. I put action in inverted commas. Um, it's directed by Roland Emmerich. This is before, obviously, Universal Soldier, Stargate, Independence Day, etc. Um, and there's kind of a conspiracy slash detective story in there, too. There isn't actually that much action. It's mostly just men and teenagers sitting around in knockoff alien sets arguing. It, they constantly argue. Uh, they I mean, they're not, it's not characters as such. They're just argument machines. They just come into a room and just choose someone to argue with. So it's really contrived, that kind of drama. The first, like, literally three quarters of the film are just training missions. Um, The whole galactic corporate war thing is basically just shoved aside instantly. And so it's just them antagonizing each other needlessly. Um, And you just, I found myself begging for an actual recognizable enemy at some point um the uh the the model work is pretty good this is obviously pre-cg so uh so there's some good model work when the ships are flying around um it has it's weird it has this kind of quite accessible kind of mainstream tone um partly because all of like basically all the pilots are like the the buff dudes um, like Michael Parry and Brian Thompson, but then all the navigators back um, back at the base, uh, all on the computers, they are um, like teenage hacker boys, basically. Um, so it has this kind of like kind of slightly kind of young adult tone, but then there's loads and loads of like really harsh swearing in it, and there's this whole like really harsh subplot about sexual assault and suicide. So it's not really any good for kids or anything. Um, yeah, it's not. It's it's disappointing in a way because it certainly looks it, it it certainly looks better than probably its budget should allow. If you see what I mean, uh, in terms of production design and obviously the uh, the cast is amazing as we've already discussed. I've um, never, I've never seen Brian Thompson in anything where he's not just jutting his jaw forward and taking his top off. What, uh, what kind of character? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you because that's pretty much what he does in this film. <laughs> <laughs> it's just thinking like this this like space opera and i'm just trying to think what part brian Thompson could play in it well I, I, his character is a bit is stupid really because i mean he's really really harsh at the start like really unpleasant to the newcomers sort of thing 
and nice. just a real proper bully. And by the end, he's just he just absolutely loves his navigator, and he's like, he's like, yeah, buddy, and all this kind of stuff. You know, you keep me alive, and all this kind of crap. Um, I can't imagine there are many Roland Emmerich completionists around, but I would say that this one's for them only, because really, I mean, if you're going to watch a kind of um, off-world detective type story, then you might as well just watch Outland with Sean Connery. Why wouldn't you? Uh, and yeah, and it's not really, it's not really enough action. And even when the action comes along, it's very much all in the spacecraft, and it's just done with models. So the only real kind of action involving people is just them in the in the cockpit shouting at each other and stuff. So yeah, it's a bit disappointing in that respect. And the script isn't good enough to make it an interesting drama, interesting dramatically. So, I mean, sounds a bit disappointing, really. I might watch that just because Ryan Thompson's in it, though. Well, yeah, and Michael Parry. So, basically, yeah, your review then to me was uh, so Moon 44, Michael Parry, Brian Thompson, <laughs> Brian Thompson, <laughs> Jackson's chin forward. <laughs> that's all I cared about. <laughs> Malcolm McDowell must have must have rang in your ears a little bit. His his accent in any film, <laughs> it's just. I don't know why, I don't believe that he picked up, you don't pick up that much of an accent, um, you know, just because you live in America. So he is clearly trying to put it on in some way. No, 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 no. Actually, I did uh, also, by the way, Michael North looks like a young Patrick Swayze. But um, he, I've, I've actually, he did an interview with Mark Maron a couple of months right. ago. And he has got a very odd accent because he'll yeah. sound very British and then he'll just suddenly... Yeah, this real like New York twang will come into it, and you're like, it's a very strange accent. He has it got is, an old accent, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he does. He's done an awful lot of that sort of thing. Like he'll say, "I was laughing my ass off," and you think, Are "You, you're in an interview now. You're not on a film set." Yeah. Just... So yeah, really? that is how he speaks. Right. Right. Let's move forty-four on my list then. Was that Amazon Prime or Netflix or that was, Love that film? was Prime? <laughs> Prime. Um, I'm done on my last one now. Yeah. And this is a film that I watched last night called Under the Gun. And the reason I watched it is because I found out that Kurt Thomas, the gymnast and star of 1985 classic Jim Carter, um, had died 69 years old. Apparently he was, I was reading about him last night, and he was, he, he kind of uh, came up with this move in, in uh, athletics called the Thomas, I think it's called the Salter. Right. And it's like a way. It's like a. It's like a, a leap and a way of kind of ending a routine. And apparently, it's paralyzed loads of people, and it's banned now. Jeez. So I thought that's really full on. There's a lot of. I. 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 didn't know what like a. I think it's just called a salter, what it was. And I when I typed it into YouTube, it was just footage of people doing it and then getting paralyzed. And I thought, well, I don't want to watch that. That's really harsh. So I, I still don't know what it is. Um. But um. But I just thought, well, that's just just really unfortunate. Anyway, Kurt Thomas is dead. Harsh. So obviously the main bad guy in um, Jim Carter was Richard Norton, who is mainly known as a stunt coordinator and fight choreographer. And he is very capable and he's shown up in a lot of stuff over the years. But Under the Gun is a 1995, they call it an Ozploitation film, um, but it's just an action film made in Australia. Right. Um, or more specifically, on another film's set in Australia <laughs> that Richard Norton, Richard Norton starred in. Um, so this is a film where Richard Norton plays, um, he's got bleach blonde hair for some reason, 
it starts off and it's meant it's mid mid nineties, right? So it's nineteen ninety five. So you can imagine, like, it's very much bright blue cowboy jeans that everyone looks like they bought from George and Asda, and just the billowing shirts and just and and everything's really bright. And the story is that he is a nightclub owner of this place called the Boilermaker. Uh, in they reckon they're supposed to be in in America, but everyone in this everyone in the film speaks the thick Australian accent. I don't, and they're using American money. You think just just say it's in Australia, it would just be much more yeah. easy for viewers. Yeah, and he's got he sold his bar. He just needs to get through one night, and then he can get this one point three million dollar payoff and bugger off with his extremely hot wife into the sunset. He's kind of had a guts full of of it all. So the film starts off. Um, and there's spoilers galore because it's, it's 1995, just so over the 20 years. And the first thing I noticed about the film was I like Richard Norton, and he's a very capable martial artist, mm. and he's worked on a lot of cool stuff. Interestingly, the director, I've forgotten his name now, oh, sorry, Matthew George, was 21 when he made the film, but he became much more famous later on as a producer. And st- he did stuff like Wind River. All right. So it's like, the, he's, I think he's in the Guinness Book of Records, like the youngest director in Australia for like a film that earns so much money, or whatever. All right. But this film, it's supposed to be a bar, um, and it's supposed to be filmed primarily at night, and it is not. It is a film set, and it's so it's so like artificially lit and bright, and so stagey. And some points when they when the camera turns around to follow people as they go through the bar, you can just see where they've just put cloth over the t- top of stuff yeah. to hide the pipes because they're clearly in the warehouse. Yeah. And and the the way it's all set up is that this is clearly filmed another film set because in the middle of this bar with this like really stagey kind of bar you know serving areas there's a pit and around this pit there's like steel kind of gantry steps going into it and a load of like vertical kitchen like fluorescent tubes around it it's like well that wouldn't be in a bar they would smash and electrocute people pouring drinks everywhere that's just this is clearly like i don't know a spaceship set or something (laughs) and so the whole film goes on, and it's basically it's kind of a light-hearted comedy where it's Richard Norton going through. He's got like a goofy kind of bouncer, and mob coming in trying to take his money. He's got someone who comes in who looks like an Australian version of Donald Pleasance trying to kind of take him down, and he's hiding these drugs that are on the premises and stuff. And the film goes on, and it's it's kind of like okay, but it's very clear that no one in the film is a capable actor, and and it's only half decent when the fight scenes kick off. You know, because obviously I get the impression that he's got his stunt team in as bit parts, so the fighting is, is solid. And then uh, the film goes on, and at the end, the the main thing of the film, the main thrust of the film is before he even opens for the night, as he turns up to the shift at the bar, sorry, shift, he obviously owns it, but to open it, there's two Asian businessmen who come in, and they are there to buy the bar off him, which is mm. all he cares about. He just wants to be shot of it. And they've got this $1.3 million in a briefcase, and they say to him, we just need to run through a few more things with your accountant and then we'll just sign it over. And his accountant is like, I'm going to be there in two hours. And that is what sets the film up, right? Yeah. So all this nonsense and bollocks goes on. And at the very end of the film, when the police finally bugger off and everything's done and, and his wife, even though she's seen him kissing a 20-year-old, has just forgiven him. He said, oh, she's young. She doesn't know what she was doing. And if I was his wife, I would have said, I'm not so much worried about what she was doing, Richard. It was it was your kind of half of the bargain I'm interested in. You kissing her, if you will. She's a total screamer as well. But anyway, at the end of the film, it's all done. The Asian businessmen walk in and then reveal that actually, ha, 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 they, they just want to take his 450 grand because they haven't got the money to give him anyway. So they just point a gun at him and it, it kicks off the final shootout. Right. And I thought to myself, you have 
walked out of this bar multiple times through this film and Richard Norton has happened to be near you when you've gone to leave and he's talked you back in. And you could have just, at the start, when Richard Norton was there by himself without any staff, shot him and taken his money. Why have you waited two hours to like suddenly now, at a, the worst time, take that opportunity to get your money back? Um, so it's not a plot that holds up to close scrutiny. No, no. Um, is, it, that, is it good overall? Like, does, if you know, if you can ignore that particular plot logic, is it okay overall? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it, it's it, it's just it's too trashy. It's too like televisual. The whole yeah. the whole thing is just so cheap. Like with the, the you know the joke. You know the, in in films where they it looks like a kind of. I don't know, Stargate SG-1 kind of film set yeah. where they're just always in the same room and they've shifted the furniture around and all the jokes are kind of, um, what's the word, like corny kind of slapsticky stuff. Mm. And then you'll have like really harsh swearing and then someone will get shot in the guts and you think there's no, there's no like tonal cohesiveness yeah. here. It's just, it's just like you're just filming, oh, what happens next? Let's film that. Like a lot of mates having fun almost. Yeah, I, I would, I would see Richard Norton. I think Richard Norton is better behind the camera as opposed to just in front of it, not right. acting very well. Right. Yeah, it, it's a particular problem for I, I see in young directors is getting that tonal balance right. Uh, yeah, oh, very much so. I don't know whether it's to do like because you think about something like um, Midnight Run, where we're saying that it's it's very tonally well balanced, and I don't think it's just to do with the script and a lot of these things. Because, for example, I mean, on that same topic, I mean, Beverly Hills Cop, for example, was written as a serious cop thriller. They put Eddie Murphy in it and it had comedic elements, but it's still underneath a quite a serious like cop thriller. And yet they managed to balance those elements of comedy and uh, like drama and the thrills very well, just like a midnight run. And. I think it's something that, yeah, younger directors struggle with, I think, which is why it was so surprising when like Tarantino broke through in the 90s as a young director that he was able to get that balance right and why so many of his pretenders failed to get it right. I think as well, it's almost like, because he's quite a strong personality, you get the impression that he's got like a handle on the cast. Yes. Like he's got a vision, and he, and it's like it's not okay. I know yeah, I'm yeah. young, but don't 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 piss around. Don't just do your thing. Like actually act like I, I want you to. Like the characters, like there's yeah. um, there's a, there's a bit in this film in uh, Under the Gun where he's got uh, Richard Norton has got like a bouncer who is um, like a doorman, not a bouncer, who's kind of got a stutter, and he looks a lot like Crispin Glover weirdly. And he's at the end of the film, it he kind of turns on him, and it turns out that he's just a drug addict, and he's. So he, he turns out he's been causing all this trouble for the whole film. And Richard Norton's like, oh, that's, I'd rather you didn't do that. We've been friends for like 40 years. And he says, go away. I forgive you, but just leave me alone. And then he turns around and pulls out a gun and tries to shoot Richard Norton, who kicks out of his hand, beats him up and says, look, just go. And the guy's like, yeah, 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 okay. And then he picks up a knife and tries to stab Richard Norton, who twists it out of his hand, throws it away and says, look, go away. And then he does something else and gets killed. And Richard Norton, then, like, he dies in his arms and he's like, oh, I forgive you. And I thought, give him a few chances there, really, Richard. But again, it's the, and there's this kind of earnestness at the end. And you think this is not in keeping with the tone of the film. Yeah. And I get the impression, like you see, a young director would just be on, on the set. Because he would have been 20 at the time. Yeah. And Richard Norton would already be like a, a kind of well into his career in his like late 30s, early 40s choreographer. And 
you can imagine like young directors not having control over a set. Yeah, not having an overarching kind of idea. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I would rather that than a fifty-year-old man writing dialogue for a hip twenty-year-old woman. Oh, we had to come back to that, didn't we? That's a new low of scripts for me. So anyway, that's me done and dusted. So what have you got? Um, well, uh, I have got Return to Oz. Uh, this was on Disney Plus, because um, obviously it's a Disney movie, um, and this is a film which. It fits into that kind of pantheon of weird, scary fantasy films for kids made in the 80s, you know, along with like Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, Neverending Story and stuff like that. Um, what I, I was reading up about this and what's interesting is that it was the it's the only film directed by Walter Murch. And I recognize the name and I thought, oh, I know that person. Of course, he started. He's an editor by trade. And he started his editing career with Orson Welles and he worked with Francis Ford Coppola and he's still editing movies today, in fact. So that's wow, pretty so cool. So what film is this, sorry? This is Return to Oz. Right. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is a direct sequel to Wizard of Oz, obviously made 45 years later, wherever it is. Um, so it's a direct sequel, except, weirdly, Dorothy is six years younger than she was in the original. Right. Yeah. She's played by Feruza Bulk. Um, uh, and it's a completely different style to the Wizard of Oz. And there's a lot of kind of location uh, scenes and stuff. Um, Am I it, right in thinking this is the one that terrified children? I've never seen this. Yes. Well, I mean, it's got actually underneath, it essentially hits the same kind of beats with regard to kind of friendship as the original and it's got a kind of similar cast of characters this time around there's a like a pumpkin head guy there's this robot soldier there's a chicken and a sofa a talking sofa there you go. <laughs> of course um yeah it is quite intense for kids there's like um there's these uh, like evil henchmen called the wheelers which are these horrendous like punk looking guys with um really elongated limbs and wheels for hands and feet and there's um this is the the queen the evil queen is called queen Mombi. she's played by jean marsh who also played the evil queen bav Morder in willow obviously okay. and um but yeah she is someone who like has with a load of interchangeable heads so there's quite an infamously terrifying sequence where dorothy is trying to go and steal a key from her and she's got this huge kind of hallway with all these glass cabinets um and there's like these disembodied heads in each of them sleeping and then she accidentally wakes them up and they all start screaming and it's horrendous um so you that's what you basically every week you have to watch a really foul children's film We've got the witches, <laughs> yeah. yeah the witch is another one to throw into the pile yeah and um yeah, and actually, before before she even goes to Oz, um, Dorothy is being because because she's obviously going on about like Oz is this special place and stuff, and the doctors, um, well, her parents and doctors think there's something wrong with her, so naturally she's like strapped down and she's about to get electroshock treatment. It's absolutely horrendous. Um, the special effects are quite good, um, but then I suppose it would be because you know they threw money at it. Um, uh, it's 
it's not bad. It's too dark and grim um, to kind of stand alongside stuff like Labyrinth and Dark Crystal and things. Um, and I, I'm personally, I'm always bothered by kind of fantasy worlds where they don't have rules. Um, it doesn't have like an internal logic to it. They right. tend to just be kind of a series of amusing ideas kind of lazily strung together because like there's some there are some cute ideas in this like where like she'll go up to there's a tree uh when she first gets to Oz and it doesn't just have like apples on it it has full like lunch boxes hanging from it so you can have like a whole lunch which is kind of cute but it just nothing really makes sense it's more like I suppose it's meant to be like a a, a true a, fantasy world weird. yeah for like a projection of our imagination I guess so it's it's to be expected. And plus, I suppose kids don't really care about the internal logic of these worlds. So, but um, yeah, it's it's kind of a weird curiosity more than anything. Uh, I think if it didn't have anything to do with The Wizard of Oz, then it would probably be forgotten about quite firmly. But Feruza Bulk's quite sweet in it. She's, um, she's very good. But yeah, bafflingly much younger than she was in the his direct predecessor, so that was weird. Yeah, because Fruzabog went on to be in The Craft was the yeah. big film for it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good movie. So, uh, yeah, that was Return to Oz. It's, I think, basically, it's if you never watched it first time around, there's not really any point of watching it now because it would probably just be a bit weird and dark. But if you watched it when it was around first time, then it's interesting to go back and see just how intense... It is, and why it is that it terrified children at the time. And is it understandable as to why it terrified children? I mean, I, I, I was so. concerned just by the pictures of the witches in the, in, in the witches. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think it's as, it's not as like aggressively foul as something like the witches. But, uh, and I, I'm not, I think people tend to go on, a, like overstate how traumatic certain films are for kids because these were the sorts of films that I've alluded to. They were around in the 80s and early 90s. And yeah, they were intense, but it's not like it's not like they actually scarred us all. You know, kids like being scared. I enjoyed being scared. It was, you know, I was terrified by the melting faces at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's not like I'm so traumatized that I couldn't possibly go back and watch that movie again. It's just like, you know, it's a good director will know how far to push it and i do think this is it just about um it just about is on the right side of completely traumatizing so uh, <laughs> but but yeah. not a good enough film to warrant it no not really it's just yeah i think it, it's just not it's not exciting enough really for um for the demands of like kids today for example i think if you were to show this to a kid now they would just take away the scary bits and not really understand what was going on. Uh, yeah. So it's, yeah. Like, in a, you know, you could watch Wizard of Oz and different age groups could be quite transported by the kind of colors, the, the dance and s- the sequences and the songs and stuff. And it would also have that scary element. Whereas this has just got the darkness and the scariness, not really anything else to it. Definitely no songs. I was going to say, are there any songs in it? There's no. Right. So that's 
that's pretty much everything. I've got so many more films to talk about, but we're coming. We're just brushing up against two hours now. Yeah, it's one hour fifty-one. So that seems I'm happy to sort of um, stop there. So, um, <clears throat> usual rules apply. What what would you say has been your film of the week? Right. Yeah. Let's see now. Um, A Time to Kill oh. is. I mean, it's the only real quality film i've watched to be honest because i'm thinking i'm looking at mcbain i mean edmund was interesting but possibly too unpleasant to to enjoy as such uh yeah so i think a time to kill for me on amazon prime directed by joel schumacher i just realized that i've got one i missed that oceans eight but we'll talk about the next time um i would it's a toss-up for me between uh midnight run and internal affairs and i i'm gonna lean more towards midnight run because it feels more timeless mm. yeah so i would say midnight run has been the film of the week for me yeah good yeah, yeah. very good film yeah so yeah it's been, it's been we've had some good ones we've had some pretty shoddy ones but um <laughs> yeah and we'll have more next time no oh well, yeah there'll be more total shash don't worry about that <laughs> so right then yeah, I'll uh, I'll love you and leave you, and um, yep. I'll get this up as soon as I can, and everyone should watch uh, Midnight Run at a Time to Kill. Excellent. Until the next time, I love well, you. Pardon? <laughs>